0: Happy New Year to all the things that we forgot. Do something with that thing. Something like that. I don't remember how the rest of the song goes, but I don't know. They sing that for some reason. And look what we unwrapped. Look what we unwrapped right here. A new website. We unwrapped a new website for the Filter Photography Podcast. It's now got some cute little animations that you'll probably like. So have a look at that. Um and now it's at a new like dedicated URL as well. You can just go to photographypodcast.com.au. Can you believe that? It's amazing. Someone hadn't taken photographypodcast.com.au. So you know what? I put A and B together. And I thought, I got a photography podcast. I'm Australian. Yeah, I'm gonna buy it. And I bought it. eleven ninety five. That's how much I paid, not 1,195, $11 and 95 cents. I was pretty happy with that. I didn't buy it at Christmas, it wasn't even a sale. That was just some good eagle eyed action. So now if you go to any of the old links, if you got them bookmarked, they'll just redirect to the new site. And also um, all your like podcast stuff will stay the same because I hate change. And so a little bit of change is okay, I guess. But anyway, look, this is what I've been up to. I've been living in June Rat's back pocket. There's a little bit of space back there. And I photographed the Best Night Ever show at Night Quarter with them on the Gold Coast. And obviously I had Junies there and Wax was there and DZ Death Rays were there. And it was just a a good, wholesome family time. And then I went to Sydney and I photographed Crowbar Sydney's opening. Because Crowbar opened down in Sydney. It's not just Brisbane anymore. There's Crowbar Brisbane. There's Crowbar Sydney. And you probably know that I photograph at Crowbar Brisbane. That's how I got my break. My medium-sized break. And now Sydney has one too. And so it's, it's so cool to have two capital cities and two Crowbars. Australia's got more. So... Let's just keep peer pressuring Trad and Tyler to um, end up with a Crowbar Darwin by the end of it. So I went there. I went down to Sydney. So Trad and Tyler, they own Crowbar, obviously. Been through that. I think everyone knows who Trad and Tyler are by now. They don't have the most common names, so we should be able to just remember that. Trad and Tyler, they own Crowbar. Crowbar. And they took over this bar in Sydney called the Bald Face Stag. And they took it over in, I think, November. And they officially opened it on the 31st of December. New Year's. To all the things that we forgot, do something with that thing. I won't submit you to it again. But, like, don't dare me. I'll do it. You know, Tratt and Tyler, they have done a great job turning the Bullface Stag into Crowbar Sydney, and they didn't just like go in and throw out like anything that was related to the Bullface Stag. And I've never been in the Bullface Stag, but being you know in Crowbar Sydney, I instantly felt that legacy of Tui's, and because apparently it's like the birthplace of Tui's, and so I felt the legacy of Tui's in there and the history of Bullface Stag. And so it was a perfect takeover, in my opinion. And if you haven't been to Crowbar, Sydney yet, it's down on 345 Parramatta Road, Leichhardt, where the bald Stag used to be, coincidentally. So I went down and I checked it out on New Year's Eve. I was doing some photos down there, like doing the bar photography and stuff like that. And I was cutting it like real fine because Tyler was like, oh, look, we can get you there on a flight at 5 a.m or we can get you on a 5 p.m flight which one do you prefer let's not forget that it was new year's eve so you best believe i took that 5 p.m flight offer but that got me in at like 7 40 p.m so cutting it really fine but hey that's the matt walter way and i made it and totally unicorn was on stage and then pagan was on it and then wax were on it and that was just the first show at Crowbar Sydney, how insane is that? Like that's that's show number one. And then, so I had the first of January to edit all the photos. And then I went back to Crowbar Sydney for the secret show, which was only the second show at Crowbar Sydney. And that secret show, when we could release the cat, the cat, he climbed out of the bag, he clawed his way out of the bag and there was three cats in there and they were all the June rats. All three cats were in the bag. When they got out of the bag, everyone was like, "Hey, June Rats are here! Play that show!" And so, yeah, it was a bit more planned than that. But basically, Cats ended up coming out of the bag, and that was show number two. How crazy is that? So, show number one: Pagan Wax, Totally Unicorn, others, and then before you know it, June Rats are playing. That's show one, two, bam. Then Cosmic Psychos were number three, or four, or something like that. But You know, week one, huge. And I met heaps of people at that show. And some of them were photographers that I hadn't met before, but I've sort of been following like Pat O'Hara. And there was heaps of good eggs. Some guy called Nathaniel, I met him. He was a cool guy. And there was probably like from the photography aspect, there was probably like half a dozen really good eggs that I hadn't met before. And no rotten eggs, just six fresh eggs. And after June Rats played, my brother-in-law, he was like letting me stay there. So I I was staying with my brother-in-law, and he he's like, um, oh, after the show, we're gonna, we're gonna leave pretty much straight after the show because it's a school night. And I'm like, yeah, I might want to get out of here too, because I was pretty burnt out from the first of January. So I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll go too. That's probably a good idea. And I go up to him at the end and I said, look, man, it's probably going to be like 15 minutes before I pack my stuff up, but I got to go upstairs. And he's like, okay, so I don't know how we got to it, but he said, if if you're going to come back down in like 15 minutes, text me the code word vanilla. Or if you're going to stay, text me the code word bean. And so I ended up, um, I went up there and, you know, at a, a gin ratio, show, you're not getting out of there quickly. It's a very fun vibe. You want to stay. So I texted him the word bean. I made an executive decision, said bean, which was I'm staying. And I didn't get out of there at 12 o'clock. If I said vanilla, I would have got out of there at 12 o'clock, but I didn't. I was like, you know what? One beer, that still equals bean. It wasn't one beer. It was 5 a.m. Bean equals 5 a.m. I should have walked out with vanilla But it was such a fun time. I don't regret saying Bean. Um, But their stairs at my brother-in-law's place is so steep and they've got this big wind in them. Oh, man. It was like I was climbing Everest to get to the top of them. But let's talk about some actual photography stuff. This is a photography podcast. This isn't about my struggles and bad decisions saying Bean instead of saying Vanilla. Motley, 95. Using a Motley 95. Motley said, I was about to say he said, I don't know. It's Motley 95. What would you recommend for a novice photographer? It's pretty wild. That's a pretty wild, open-ended question, my man. You know, what are you looking to photograph? How serious are you about it? How committed are you to things? I just recommend you try as many different photography genres as possible. We we talked about that in a previous app, but Also buy a camera within your means. An expensive camera isn't always what you should start with fresh out of the gate, as tempting as it is. Because I've seen so many people, they post their expensive cameras online, selling it just a while after getting it. And you can tell because they go like, oh, it has barely been used. There's only like 250 shutter fires on it. The hell? Like, did, did they even try photography when they got a 250 photos? So some people they think they're gonna love photography and they invest really big thinking, oh, it's better to go big because I'll save my money you know I'll save myself money in the long run. but they haven't even tried it. So it's okay to start slow. Just start slow and steady because the biggest difference between a novice photo and an exports photo, an expert's photo, sorry, we're not even exporting stuff. I'm like in the world of photography. the biggest difference, between a novice photo and an expert's photo is the editing. It's not the camera, it's the editing. It's knowing where you can take the photo when you, you know, after you take it, like what are you gonna change about it? Where where are you gonna accentuate those, you know, points of difference? And if if it's a macro photo, you know, you do a macro photography, it's about how sharp things are. And so you can do that in post. And then as you start to get a little bit more experience, those bottlenecks become just really a little bit more obvious to you. But when you're starting out, you're not going to see those bottlenecks anyway. So you may as well go a little bit more sort of, you know, uh, simpler, save yourself some money, make sure you actually want to do it and then expand from there. I think my first camera was like 800 bucks. I've gone through probably, I was in, I was on Nikon then, so you know, a lot can change. Just start small and build yourself up from there. Okay, this one, this this username, this person has either Mrs. Iman Merangle. Meringue. Miss Miss Mrs I'm on meringue. Or it could be Mr. Simon Meringue. So again, that's two for two. Don't know if you're a dude. Don't know if you're a girl. So if it's Simon Merang, uh, I'm sorry about that. If you're someone's missus and you're I'm on Merang, stay on the Merang. You've asked any wise wise words for anyone who is trying to get their foot in the door for bigger photography jobs. So whether your last name is Merang or if you're on that Merang, you have asked a good question. And I'm going to assume that you're already really active and you're just feeling sort of stuck doing the same sized work all the time. I'm just assuming that you're ready for bigger work. But the trick is to get to know everyone. In my experience, the people who like book all the the big jobs and book big jobs regularly are the people who are really reliable. there's two parts to that reliability. Your consistency in producing good work and your consistency in being visible. You don't have to be the best photographer. You don't even need to be the best human. Trying to be either or both is good practice, but in reality, it isn't absolutely required to get bigger photography jobs or bigger jobs in anything. Look at how many you know, bad people are high up on the chain. You, know, you don't have to be a good human, but it, it does help and let's encourage everyone to be good humans. But let's break those two parts down like individually. So first I said, you you need to produce consistent work. And this one's a no brainer, but notice I never said the best work. Like I was saying before, you don't need the best work. You just need consistent work. Everyone's thought about, you know, from time to time, How bad it'd be if you hired someone to carry out a service and then you find out that they're not actually good at it. Or you're hiring someone at work and they lied on their resume, whatever it might be. So when someone books you for a big job, the risks are also bigger, the risks for them. I mean, there's a risk to you as well, but the job is considered big and the risks are also bigger for the client. And so if you blow it, that's fine. That's okay. But your chances of blowing, it needs to be like 1% as opposed to 50%. You need to be confident because if you blow it, you nuke yourself out of an unknown portion of work. Like, you know, who knows what you're sort of losing by nuking it. So you need to be confident. There's never a guarantee that you're going to hit it out of the park. Sometimes when I think I've hit it out of the park, I've just done an okay job. I'd consider that a blown it, but that's my 1%. I better make sure that the next 99 are good. You know, like you can't, no one's perfect. And if you think about this, go onto like a photographer's website or like a company's website. And you'll often see like a list of logos of people that the photographer or the company's worked with. And the reason they do that is to show potential clients that they've been trusted with companies as big as, you know, the considering client's company. Maybe the client is even smaller, but people think like, hey, if this a guy photographed for AZDC, then he's probably good. Let's just ask him to shoot for the upcoming Powderfinger reunion tour. It's a safe bet. P.S. Powderfinger are not reuniting. That is just an example. But it's a trust-based exercise. Your role you know, in that is to be consistent with your work so there's no chinks in your chain of work. You want everything to be super smooth. And the second thing is to be consistent in being visible. People are really, really busy. Like we are, everyone's busy. And it's easiest to pick someone that the client knows. And so you need to be remembered even when you're not around. You want to be sort of front of mind, that the first three people that they think of. I see two types of photographers when I'm out and about. The first type, they exist within the space. And the other type, they try to network with all these people. And the people that try to network with people they're often trying too hard. And it just stinks of not being authentic. It just stinks like desperation. They step on everyone's toes. They're always trying to sort of be remembered. They're always trying to make an offer. They're always trying to do all these things. And it's like, man, those people are so annoying because everyone else is just trying to either work or trying to have a good time. And you being some like, you know, sweaty salesman, it's not good and so it just isn't confident and ultimately that casts doubt on the quality of your work because otherwise you'd just be doing it and you would be you know just going here's my work thanks and being real confident with that not like oh hey man uh you know what what are uh, what's your next like 3 years worth of tours are oh, can you like get me on them oh yeah mate let me just get you 2021's uh calendar And I'll promise it to you right now. By the way, what do your photos look like? Who knows? Like that—that that is just like ridiculous. But people do that. So it's just about being calm and just being confident in yourself. If you just exist within the space, you'll naturally form friendships with people. And then you'll be remembered, you know, as, you know, you'll just be remembered fondly pretty much. And you won't be taking risks and you won't be leaving this huge footprint of your existence on things you're just you. You don't have to change yourself to work with people and to win work. And you shouldn't just do it just like you shouldn't, you know, change yourself to make people like you. People like you or they don't. You're there to do a job, you're not there to entertain or to pressure people into remembering you in some way. Just arrive, make some content, do your job, and leave. Whoever you talk to or end up talking to, it'll just come about naturally, it'll just be organic. And you'll be remembered as that photographer that was easy to work with and not as much hassle as that other photographer we once booked that was worried about 2021's tours. The more people you come in contact with, the higher the chances of meeting other people who will hire you. Like it's either gonna be word of mouth or it's just inevitable. I met the owner of Crowbar and I did a heap of work for him, um, and he eventually introduced me to Van Soho. Soho introduced me to Deezy Deathrays. Deezy introduced me to June Rats. June Rats introduced me to Skeggs and so on and so on, or something very similar to that. But it was it was very like one for one, and I hadn't been producing consistent work for multiple venues. If I hadn't been producing consistent work for multiple venues. I wouldn't have been noticed and contacted by Trad who owns Crowbar. So doing consistent work for Trad and not punishing bands and giving his venue a bad name was probably why he felt okay to introduce me to Soho and and so on, I guess. You know, if you're consistent with your work and your honest personality, you will exude reliability. And then it's just a matter of time. The more work you do, the more people you'll meet. Mexican Seafood, delicious. User Mexican Seafood wrote, Hi, I'm newish to photography and I've recently been wanting to get into film cameras and whatnot and was just wondering if Vivitar film cameras are any good. If not, do you have any camera suggestions? Seafood Master, there really isn't any bad film cameras, but there are film cameras in poor condition and they're bad. If you want to get into film cameras, you're probably going to want to do it because you like the vibe of a film photography, right? And the vibe of film photography is pretty unique, as we know, and the cameras themselves are what gives it that unique vibe and the film stock, obviously, but the camera quality is what we're talking about here. If you think about Holger, It's made to have light leaks and these unpredictable factors that will influence the photo that you end up with. And compared to Mamiya's offering, like if we look at Mamiya 645s, you know, the Holger will look much grittier because the Mamiya is a sturdier camera. It's built to not have those light leaks and they've they've spent time sort of, you know, they're, they're not banking on that as their sort of unique thing. You know, it's still going to have its quirks though. And that's part of the fun of, of film photography. So I reckon just give the Vivitar a go and see what you think. Like my personal favorite film camera is a Mamiya C330. It doesn't even have a light meter. I take some horrible pics on it, but it's just something about it. I just feel good using it. But yeah, I would stay away from cameras that are in poor condition. A lot of like really old cameras They've grown fungus or have this hazing over the lens and that stuff is almost impossible to get rid of and they can spread to your other camera gear super quick. And even if you think you've got rid of all the haze and fungus, it can and probably will grow back. It's almost to the point where I've got this rule that if the camera that I'm looking at buying has fungus, I just don't buy it. I've been handed down a couple of cameras that have fungus growing on the lens and I don't use those cameras. I just keep them for memory's sake. Obviously, I can't get rid of them like I love them for the sentimentality, but I just keep them in a separate room on a shelf and I never bring other gear near it. People can call me paranoid, uh, but that's my warning to you. Don't use it. Okay, Neil wrote, I wanna get back into landscape photography. I'm nothing special, but I did it a few years ago as a hobby and I wanna get back into it this year. I'm not a beginner, but I definitely not consider myself anything above that either. Uh, Do you have any recommendations for an SLR? I have a Nikon, but it's around eight years old. I'm not after anything too ridiculous, just something that'll do the job and take nice landscape photos. I was reading the best camera for it are full frame, but they're also so expensive. Yeah, they are. And honestly, landscape photography—it's about two things. It feels like everything's about two things, but that's a very dynamic way of putting it. But landscape photography is about needing to capture something wide, and you know the other being good choices for editing, like good skills in editing. The camera bodies—one of those things. You know, the more you spend, the more technically better the photo because, you know, the sense of being full frame makes it a bit wider and it also lets a little bit more light in. And both those benefits are nice, but they're not must-haves for landscape photography, at least if you're starting out like the advice I gave earlier. If you're not sure how committed you'll be to it, you're probably better off going for like, you know, a mid-range camera body and then focusing on getting a nice wide lens and a tripod over, you know, paying extra for a bigger sensor. I think like, cameras are like, kind of like cars. There's cheap ones and there's expensive ones. They're all new, but the, the pricing ranges a lot. The cheaper the car, the less features it'll have. And it might not be this super quiet engine that the high-end model has, but it'll still get you from A to B. It'll just have less features on the journey sort of thing. People take amazing landscape shots on cheap gear, dude. It's like, it's all in the editing. And when I say get a wide lens, I would think you would probably want something around about 14 mil to 24 mil, like that sort of wide. And bigger zooms aren't always better. Like if someone tries to push a zoom on you and you want to do landscape photography, really, what sort of use is 135 millimeters going to be to you in landscape stuff it's probably not going to be useful at all so push that back and i would probably spend the money that they're trying to sting you for that sort of zoom range on a prime lens that's really wide like around that 14 mil to 24 ideally around like 24 is a good amount okay trent Hillary. Trent says, hey man, not sure if you're willing to talk about it, but I'm struggling with charging for my work. How much should I charge? We all know how much gear costs, especially for video. Yeah, we do, Trent. It sucks, I feel your pain. I think everyone struggles with this kind of stuff. And how much you charge, it should depend on what the client is willing to pay. That's my view. values in the eye of the person buying the service and the person providing the service, but putting my digital marketing cap on, there's a few different pricing methods you could look at, and I just want to tell you about three. There's there's like you know six, and people can like push it to ten, right? But I think based off what you said, there's kind of three that I'd recommend you choose from, and they're competitive pricing, customer perceived value pricing, and cost plus pricing. This sounds like a lecture right now, but what I'm trying to say is um, there's, there's three things that I'd consider if I were you. Competitive pricing, that's pretty straightforward, right? You take a sample of what everyone in the industry is charging and you apply like a figure to your work that's in line with the quality that's compared to what your competitor is offering. So you're sort of like you're benching yourself in there and you're, you're charging the same amount as they are. And you should get at least three quotes to do it properly because if you sample from just one, you're going to be making some pretty short-sighted decisions on it. Cost plus pricing is about figuring out what it costs for you to do business and then adding some extra cheese on top um, you know, for you to take home. That's your little bonus. As a videographer, you might calculate your costs as you know, a division of the cost of your equipment over a set amount of jobs. So if you think your camera's lifespan is like 300 jobs, for example, then you know it's the cost of your camera divided by 300. And you would do the same for all your gear and the other expenses you have for doing business. And then you would add some profit on top just as a percentage. And to give you an idea, like most people, sort of pick between 25% and 50%. Um, and most people stay in between sort of 30% and 35%. And the third method is the customer perceived value way of pricing. So this one's a little harder to figure out because you need to do a little bit of chat at the front face with your clients or you know, your potential clients. You'd need to do a little bit of research because you wanna understand what your perceived benefit is and then you deduct the perceived cost from that. It's not about what your real costs are. It's about what your perceived benefit and cost is in the client size. So say a client feels a video of yours is worth like 800 bucks and they expect it will cost you like 500 bucks to hire the equipment and, and all those are uh, components that we spoke about before. To be able to create the video. So instantly, you know the client won't pay more than like 800 bucks, but they also will pay more than $500. And so the $300 difference is what the customer perceived value is. And that means you can charge between 500 and 800 bucks. The closer towards 500 you charge, the higher the perceived value for the client. And so if you go over 800 that's obviously going to be pricing out of the market. And so that's where you know that sort of sweet spot is. And it doesn't matter what your actual costs are. Like I said, it's about, you know, what they're perceived to be and what the perceived benefit is. So if you can somehow, if, if there's perceived to be higher costs or there's perceived to be costs and you, for whatever reason, call in favors, it doesn't matter because the perceived cost is 500 bucks. So it doesn't matter what the actual costs are. And in my Callister, everyone is getting paid 400% of what they're worth. Hey, that's that's my dream life, man. But it isn't that easy. It's okay to experiment. So maybe like think about which one makes sense to you. Hopefully one of those three will just like jump out at you. And I know you wouldn't do this, but, you know, I'll say it because some people probably would consider it, you know, it's not okay. It's never okay to fluctuate your price in accordance with how busy you are. You know, the client shouldn't wear your inability to book a lot of work. If you're quiet, you know, in terms of business, you're quiet. Much like the client can't control their business's output, they aren't going to offer you less because it's been a quiet week. You got to keep your rate stable because word of mouth is super powerful. And if two clients found out that you charged them differently, you'll lose the chance for future work for both of them. Like, I guarantee it. And word does spread. All right, last one. Lockie Brown photo. Lockie wrote, hey, Matt, I've been a fan of your work for a while now and just had a quick question about what camera slash cameras you have at the moment. I love surf photography, but I also love music. I'm a drummer in a band, but that's another story. Anyway, cheers, Lockie. Now kind of want to know what band you're in. I get a pandemic sort of vibe, maybe. Anyway, thank you. Thanks for the kind words. Really kind of you. I run with Canon 5D Mark III and I've got a heap of different lenses and I use them for a heap of different things. For music photography, I obviously use my Canon 5D Mark III body and I use this mix of like a 24 to 70 2.8 uh, and I use that for like club stuff um, or like small venues and then... If I'm not using that one and there's not much light, then I use a 35 millimeter 1.4. That's a Sigma. So um, that one's super nice. It's not weatherproof, but it's a really nice sharp lens, the Sigma 35 mil 1.4 art. And the 24 to 70 2.8, that's a Canon one. Then I've got a 70 to 200 2.8, and I use that for like festivals when the stage is like real high or the stage is far away. And then if I want to get crowd stuff, I use a 14 millimeter fisheye. That's a Sigma one as well. It overexposes like crazy. Uh, but all the data is there. It's just like, sometimes I take a photo and I look at the back of the, the camera and I go, man, that's so blown out. It didn't work, but it does. You just got to pull it back like two stops, but it's like a $500 lens. It's not that expensive and it's so uh, crystal clear. I really like that one. So that's that's my music stuff. And for macro stuff, I use my five D Mark III again, but I use either a hundred mil macro lens, like just Canon's hundred mm macro lens, or I use a sixty-five mm MPE, and I use a twin light flash on either of those. The sixty-five millimeter MPE is really good if you want like the hairs of, you know, an insect to to um stand out. Effectively, the lens is built backwards. Like if you can find like a video, I'll see if I can find a video and put it in the show notes, but it's basically like built this camera back to front, which magnifies it, you know, one to five times, uh, you know, life size against the sensor. So it's pretty sick. You can get some cool stuff. If I can dig up some photos that I've taken, I'll put them in the post as well. Uh, As for film cameras, I don't do much film stuff. When I do, I don't really share it. I don't know. Maybe i just keep that to myself. Um, I don't think I'm that great at it, but I've got a few cameras. I've got a Mamiya C330, which I mentioned before. I love that camera. It's difficult, but I love it. It just feels good. Like if you remember, um, if you remember like Kingswood car, I think Kingswood cars, it just feels heavy and substantial like that, but not that heavy. Cause I've also got a Mamiya RZ67. That thing is heavy. I guarantee it. So I've got a Mamiya C330 and a Mamiya RZ67. I've also got a Mamiya 645 Pro TL. Uh, Henry and I keep uh, flipping back and forward on that one. Uh, He loves it. I love it. Um, So we share that around a bit. And then I've got a Holger 120 GCN and a Canon 1N RS. The 1N I had um, ended up crapping itself out. Um, and my one NRS now has some battery leakage in it, which is really annoying. Otherwise, I would probably be using that more because that camera is a beast and fits all my uh, Canon lenses. Holy moly! I just looked at the time—thirty-five minutes. I think a lot of it is because I was singing that stupid, uh, you know, New Year's song. So let's wrap it there. I'm gonna say, have a good week. Welcome to 2019. Uh, I'm gonna see you at a gig soon. I'm sure other than that, check out the new filter website. It's at photographypodcast.com.au. Filter uh, Filter's still there. It's still called filter, but I couldn't pass that domain name up, name up, you know, like. Um, yeah, I hope everyone's feeling cute and I'll see everyone on the next day.